What a church believes shapes how a church behaves. And how a church behaves is bolstered by the gospel that church believes. For those of you taking notes, I'm going to repeat that again. What a church believes shapes how a church behaves. And how a church behaves is bolstered by the gospel that church believes. We've said it before, but it bears repeating. Our belief and our behavior are inextricably tied together. What we believe about Christ determines how we behave for Christ. How we behave for Christ is shaped by what we believe about Christ. Today we begin a new 10-part sermon series simply entitled, First Timothy, Building God's Church. The truth of that statement of how belief and behavior inextricably tied together is on display in nearly every chapter of this letter that Paul wrote to his son of the ministry, Timothy. Today I want us to focus on the introductory remarks of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. I want to preach a sermon by the Spirit's power that's simply entitled, Gospel Grounded. Gospel Grounded. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 to 11. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 1. Please hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, for unholy, irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Church, we are grounded in that glorious gospel that the Lord has entrusted to us. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This morning, as we set up this brand new 10-part sermon series, I want to spend uh, significant moments in giving the backstory. We are told in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, that the author of this letter is the man named Paul, an apostle of God by the command of God. So this man's apostleship was not by his choice, but by God's command. You do know that if you are in Christ, 
You are part of God's property. He owns you. It's not so much that you chose God, but God chose you before the very foundation of the world. And when you chose God, you're just catching up with God already, what God already knew from eternity past. God had sovereignly selected this man named Paul to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first time we meet the man named Paul, his name is Saul. He is a religious terrorist. He is a Jewish man who under the authority of the Jewish establishment of the first century, he would go and try to persecute, imprison, and sometimes even murder any followers of the way. Followers of the way, those were individuals who were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. On one given day, Paul had papers to arrest individuals. He was on his way to Damascus, and he met King Jesus. Quite literally, Jesus knocked him off his high horse. The light blinded Paul. Later, he was dramatically converted to Christ. He was commissioned to be one of the greatest missionaries in church history. In fact, his conversion was so dramatic that it took Barnabas to accompany him to alleviate any concerns that brothers and sisters may have. Can you imagine with me that when this one named Saul, who's now named Paul, who used to persecute Christians, now he says he's one of us, he's a believer in the Lord Jesus, and, and he comes to speak to our gathering. Can you imagine with me that Paul would come in and say, hey, now I am a believer. I've done a 180 turn. I mean, I have been truly converted. And he would tell his story. And at the end of it, he would offer an invitation. And he would say, every head bowed and every eye closed. And there would be more than a few of us who would say, Paul, if it's all right with you, we're going to keep every eye on you and every eye open because I don't know if we quite trust you yet. I mean, this is how dramatic. Paul was a bad dude but he was no match for King Jesus. In fact, nobody is a match for King Jesus. King Jesus is able to convert anybody by his sovereign selection. So King Jesus met Paul, transformed Paul. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned, sent out by the church at Antioch to be missionaries. Now, historians tell us that Paul probably uh, was kind of a scrawny man. Um, you read his story in the book of Acts, and he's a spiritual punching bag. He seems to be kicked out of every town as he goes to the Jew first and the Gentile second. Uh, he goes in, and, and, and people, as they hear his gospel, as they hear his story, they ridicule him, they punch him, they spit upon him, they beat him to a pulp, they kick him out, send him down the road. Uh, historians tell us that Paul, he was probably a, a small man, a scrawny man, actually, uh, Probably thin and uh, bald with a crooked nose is what one theologian says, one historian writes. Uh, he had knobby knees. I mean, he was a small guy. In fact, every time I read that description, I can't help but think that Paul the Apostle must have looked a lot like Paul Feinbaum. I mean, if you have ever seen Paul Feinbaum, I mean, that's the description of him, right? And so that's what Paul the Apostle must have looked like. I mean, we've got some junior high kids who could probably beat up Paul the Apostle because he was not a big, robust, strong man. And yet he was strong in the spirit, yet it seemed that every place he went, he was kicked out. In Acts chapter 14, we are told about his first missionary journey. Ultimately, Paul will have three missionary journeys, but the first missionary journey, uh, he goes to a particular city 
And by the Spirit's power, he's able to heal a lame man. The man jumps up to his feet. When the citizens of that town, when they see what happened, they said, God has come down to visit us, for the gods are now in human form. And Paul and Barnabas said, look, we're not gods, we're just guys. Not long after that, some troublemaking Jews showed up. They came from Antioch. They followed Paul and Barnabas. They said, look, those individuals, they're not just normal guys. They're certainly not gods. They're just a couple of goons. I mean, you need to kick them out as quickly as possible. Their argument won the day. In fact, they beat up Paul, probably stoned him. They drug him out of town, leaving him half dead. After the crowd left, the believers, we are told, gathered around Paul. I'm assuming they probably prayed for him. And in just a moment, he got up to his feet. Now, if that were you, if that was your story, if you had been punched and ridiculed and stoned and left half dead, and if if by God's spirit, he kind of enabled you to have the strength to get back up again, what would you do next? If you're anything like me, you'd probably go on someplace else. You know what Paul did? Luke tells us, Luke's the author of the book of Acts, he tells us that Paul went right back into that same city. He went back to that same place that had just ridiculed him and punched him and slapped him and beaten him. He went right back to that same place. Why? Because he was convinced they needed the gospel. If you are grounded in the gospel, there are three things I want to tell you today. The first one is this. If you are grounded in the gospel, your allegiance to Christ becomes your dominant desire. Your allegiance to Christ becomes your dominant desire. It's not that you don't have any other desires. Yeah, we have a mixed bag of desires, some good, some bad. But the dominant desire of life for the person who has grounded the gospel, the dominant desire of that individual says, my allegiance to Christ is more important than anything else. It's more important than my personal pleasure. It's more important than my own comfort. It's more important than keeping myself preserved. It's more important than my own safety. My allegiance to Christ is my dominant desire. The reason Paul went back into that city because he was convinced the gospel is true. We're not Christians because somehow we think that the gospel will give us an easy life. We are not Christians because somehow we've been duped into thinking that following Christ will bring comfort. We are not Christians in the hopes that somehow following Christ will give us some level of wealth or some sustained health. No, we are followers of Jesus Christ because we believe his gospel is true. And because it's true, he is our dominant desire. Our allegiance to him motivates everything that we do. So we, we even go into hostile situations simply because the gospel is true. Paul was grounded in this gospel. You and I are grounded in this same gospel. And the reason you know that you are grounded in that gospel is because your allegiance to Christ becomes your dominant desire. After the first missionary journey, Paul went on his second missionary journey. It's at this point that he went to the place called Lystra. He's introduced to a young man named Timothy. It's the Timothy of our passage. It's the Timothy who is the recipient of this first and second letter from Paul. Timothy was raised in a divided house. For me to say a divided house, that does not necessarily mean that mom was an Alabama fan and dad was an Auburn fan. For him to be raised in a divided house simply meant that dad was a Greek and mom was a Jew. 
Yet she was a Jew who believed in God and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy had the awesome privilege of seeing on display obedient devotion to Christ from his mom. In fact, in 2 Timothy, Paul will talk about how this gift of faith has come down from one generation to the next. For it has been in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now it lives and resides in you. You know the faith does go from one generation to the next generation, from one person to the next person, from you to your children to your grandchildren. I mean, this is how the gospel goes from one generation to the next. We simply tell it and we live it. That's what happened in the life of Timothy. He saw the gospel on display from his mom. And he saw it lived out in the life of his grandmother. And so his grandmother and his mother introduced young Timothy to Jesus. And Timothy was a follower of Jesus. And Paul noticed him. Paul noticed that there was something special about this young man. The favor of God was upon him. And so Timothy joined Paul in his missionary endeavors. On the third missionary journey, Paul spent an enormous amount of time in the city of Ephesus. You'll recall when I read the passage of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, Paul tells Timothy, remain there in Ephesus. Ephesus was a leading city. It was an influential city. It was so influential that the apostle Paul stayed there in Ephesus for three years. This is the longest he stayed in any one place. He stayed there for three years because he knew that this was a significant city. Now, it was a pretty pagan city, like every city of that day, every city of this day. It was a Mega metropolitan area. Uh, the significant part about Ephesus is that it was the home to the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Its beauty and its architecture rivaled the pyramids of Egypt, the mausoleum, uh, Taj Mahal, the hanging gardens of Babylon, among the others. So the temple of Artemis was a significant tourist attraction. Not only were the Ephesians very, very religious because they would worship there in the temple of Artemis. Artemis was believed to be the goddess of fertility. Uh, she was an ugly creature, if you've ever seen a, a picture of her. I mean, she is God-awful ugly, but believed to be the uh, goddess of fertility. So uh, people would go and worship Artemis in the hopes that they would be able to have children and that their crops would uh, yield a, a great uh, harvest and that their animals would even be productive. And so they would go to Artemis. The temple of Artemis not only was a house of worship, but it was like a museum. People would come and they would tour that temple. If you've ever been to museums of our day, you know that uh, when you get through going through the museum, they always lead you into the gift shop, right? Uh, because they want you to buy some of the wares of that museum. The same thing for the temple of Artemis. There were numerous merchants who set up shop right outside around the vicinity of the temple of Artemis. When Luke tells us the story in Acts chapter 16 and following, he says that when Paul and Timothy and the, and, and the boys, when they got there, they preached so fervently. They preached so accurately about the gospel. A revival broke loose. In fact, Luke calls it a riot. A riot broke out in Ephesus because people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ by the droves. One particular man is named Demetrius. Luke tells us that Demetrius uh, would sell 
small silver shrines of Artemis. He was one of those merchants that set up his wares. He had constructed these little bitty shrines. People would go through the temple. They would think, oh, that's wonderful. Let's take a little bit of Artemis back home with us. And so they go and they buy these little trinkets, these little pagan idolatry uh, symbols, these little silver shrines. So many people came to faith in Jesus Christ. It drove that man out of business. And Luke tells us he had no small business. I mean, he had a lucrative income. And so many people were coming to faith in Christ that nobody wanted to buy those shrines. Nobody wanted to buy those little trinkets of pagan idolatry. Everybody said, look, my allegiance is to Christ. My allegiance is not to some silver shrine of Artemis. It drove this man out of business. He was not the only one. In fact, people gathered all of their sorcery books, all of their pagan trinkets of idolatry. They brought them to the, to the town square of Ephesus, and they burned them publicly. And by that action, they were declaring, hey, our allegiance is to Jesus, not to any sorcery or magic, not to the supernatural uh, paganism of Artemis or anything else. And so they burned all their books and all their trinkets. The author of Acts tells us that the value of all that was burned was 50,000 drachma. You say, well, what's the big deal? What's a drachma? A drachma was a day's wage. 50,000 days worth of wages. That was the equivalent of all that was burned. You do the math, that's 137 years of wages. That's significant money. When people give their money, you know it's significant, right? I mean, people put their money where their mouth is. These individuals said, a revival has broke loose. Our life has been changed, turned upside down. We now serve King Jesus. So anything that's not of Jesus, we don't even want in our house. And so they came and they burned all those trinkets. It was mighty, right? When you are grounded in the gospel, first and foremost, your allegiance to Christ becomes your dominant desire. But secondly, when you are grounded in the gospel, you understand that Christ conquers culture. Christ conquers culture. The only thing that can turn culture to the good and for the good is Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus is so adamant about conversions that he knows that in order to change a culture for the good, it changes one conversion at a time, one person at a time. The way you change culture is by presenting the gospel and that God saves people and converts them one individual at a time. Now, that's what happened in the days of Ephesus, but it still happens today. You and I say to ourselves, we live in terrible times of a wicked culture. We're going to hell in a handbasket here in America, right? I mean, we think to ourselves, it can't get any worse, friends. It can't get worse. But we think to ourselves, it can't get any worse. I remember when it used to be so much better, right? And we talk about that. And we think about how terrible our culture is. Do you know how we change our culture? One conversion at a time. I mean, when we introduce somebody to Jesus... And it really sticks. When we introduce somebody to Jesus and it really stays on them. When we introduce somebody to Jesus and it changes them from the inside out. It changes how they think, how they behave, how they spend their money, 
where they go on vacation, what they do, uh, what they value, how they talk, how they're engaged in mission, how they're plugged into the church. I mean, listen, when you became a Christian, it changed everything, didn't it? Woo, that was a place for a hearty amen. I mean, when you came to Christ, when you surrendered your life unto him, it changed how you thought. It changed your value system. It changed how you spent your money. It changed the level of your generosity. It changes everything. Because when you're gospel grounded, when you're grounded in the gospel, you realize that Christ conquers culture. Here's the harsh reality. If we live in a bad culture, part of the reason has to be we've been far too silent about the gospel. Can you agree with me on that? I mean, if, if what changes a culture for the good, more conversions, how can people hear unless we go and tell? If people aren't being converted, it's probably because they're not hearing. If they're not hearing, it's because we're not going. If we're not going and we're not telling, then we're being disobedient to God, right? You remember a, a couple of weeks ago, I said more in 24. And the number one thing we talked about were we're going to reach more in 24. The only way we reach more in 24 is that you and I get tenacious about telling the story. We get eager in evangelism. And we say, you know what? We know because of the gospel that unless a person has explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they die, they will perish, spend eternity in a place called hell, separated from God. We don't want that for anybody, not our worst enemy or our best friend. So we've got to go and tell that the only Savior has come. His name is Jesus. And explicit faith in him and his work will save us both now and forevermore. If we live in a bad culture, we partly have to blame ourselves. If we live in a bad culture, we partly have to blame ourselves because maybe we just have not been so eager for there to be a riot in Pelham, for there to be a riot in Alabama, for there to be a revivalistic riot throughout this country. May you and I be so gospel grounded that we believe and know that Christ conquers culture. And by that belief, it shapes our behavior. So we go on 24 mission trips in 24. So we're eager to go across the street and across the globe. So we are looking for opportunities to share with our football team and our classmates, our teammates, our coworkers, our neighbors, our family, and our friends. The Apostle Paul, he models for us what it looks like to be gospel grounded. On that third missionary journey, he was there in Ephesus, spent about three years there. A revival broke loose in such a way that a church was born. It's a church at Ephesus. The Ephesian church was a significant church. You know it's significant because, I mean, Paul, he was there for three years. He never spent any, he was never any place for that long of a time. You also know it's significant because there's a letter in the New Testament that bears its name. Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Your book of Ephesians, that's the church at Ephesus. I mean, it's First Baptist Church, Ephesus. It's right downtown, right? And, and Paul writes this letter to them. You also know it's a significant church because when Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, the very first church that's listed is which one? Oh, yeah. 
the church at Ephesus. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, this church at Ephesus, they do a lot of things well. I got one thing against you. You've forsaken your first love. First in chronology and first in intensity. First in importance. You've forsaken your first love. You have abandoned your, your prominent passion for me. Friends, I wonder if Jesus were to write a letter to First Baptist Church Pelham, what would he say? I venture to say he would articulate, hey, look, y'all are doing a lot of great things. And Jesus would say, y'all, because we're in the South, and he would, that's how he would address us. But he would say, y'all are doing a lot of great things. But I wonder if Jesus would look at any of us and say, but I got one thing against you. You've forsaken your first love. How do you know if you've ever forsaken your first love? Well, let me simply ask it this way. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were more passionate about Christ than you are today? Has there ever been a moment you were more eager to come to church than you were this morning? Has there ever been a time in your life when you're more tenacious about telling the story of the gospel than you are right now? Is there ever a time when you are more eager in evangelism than you are in this season of your life? If the answer is yes, then maybe, like the Ephesians, you've lost your first love. See, when we walk with Christ, when we are grounded in his gospel, it's an ever-flowing stream. He enables us to be more and more passionate, more and more in love with him. And he does not want us to ever have a moment in our life when we loved him more than we do right now. Paul spent significant time in Ephesians, in Ephesus. The, the church there, First Baptist of Ephesus, it was raised up out of this great revival that happened. When people gave up their trinkets of paganism and their sorcery books and their magic and all those kind of things. It's a significant church. In our passage of 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 to 11, Paul says to Timothy, when I was in Macedonia, I urged you, stay in Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor of the church. He was a gifted young pastor. He was a gifted preacher. He was sent there uh, to, to pastor that church. It was an established church. It was a multi-generational church. That church at Ephesus, they had some old men. They had some young men. They had some old women. They had some young women. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle will say to his son of the ministry, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Set an example for them. In speech, and life, and love, and faith, and in purity. You be an example to them. Now the reason Paul told Timothy, stay in Ephesus, keep on preaching the gospel, keep on pastoring that congregation, is in our passage he says, you stay there and command certain men not to teach false doctrine. And you command them not to give themselves to a silly myth or Hotly debated, endless genealogies. That word command is a strong word. It means to give strong orders. Paul says to Timothy, I want you to be like a general. I want you to command certain men, stop teaching false doctrine. Because what you believe impacts how you behave. And how you behave, it shapes 
and is bolstered by the gospel that we say we believe. So it's imperative that we have right belief. If we don't have right belief, we will not have right behavior. So you command certain men, stop teaching false doctrine. Now, these certain men, probably older men. I mean, think about it. Timothy is a young guy. And he's been charged by Paul, his father in the ministry. You command, you correct, you get in their face in a very polite way, but you tell them, stop teaching false doctrine. Now, later in chapter one, <laughs> Paul has no problem calling out names. Hymenaeus, Alexander, he calls two of them by name. Hey, yeah, I'm talking about you. Now, that's easy to say when you're writing it. You know what to face them, right? I mean, Paul, he had great courage in his letters because he said, hey, the, the, the false men that I'm talking about, those false teachers, Hymenaeus, you're one of them. And, and Alexander, you're another one, right? And, and Timothy had to read that and then say, uh, Brother Hymenaeus, can I come and have a conversation with you? You know, Brother Alexander, can I have a conversation with you, right? Paul said, Timothy, stay there and command certain men not to teach false doctrine. And they're just giving themselves into silly myths and endless hot topic debated genealogies. Later in our passage, and I believe it's verse six, he just calls it meaningless talk. That phrase meaningless talk, it means useless chatter. Are we ever guilty of useless chatter in our small groups, in our Sunday school classes, uh, in our D groups? as we go up and down the hallways. I mean, are we ever guilty of just silly, useless chatter? Paul says that distracts us from being gospel grounded. That, that, that kind of distorts our purpose. We gotta be singular in our purpose. Because these men were so passionate about what they taught, but they were teaching false doctrine. They were teaching things that just weren't true about God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They were engaged in Silly stuff, silly conversation. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Um, uh, I know that every, every tradition, they have certain stories that they promote as truth. I mean, in the American tradition, uh, is it true that George Washington cut down a cherry tree? I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But we pass it off as American tradition. We have a bunch of American stories where we make people larger than life and, and we really celebrate them. And, 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 and we, it's, it's just a myth. It's just a silly story. These men were doing some of that with Old Testament characters. Now, it wasn't anywhere taught in the Torah. It wasn't anywhere taught in the scripture. But they were just making up some stories, some fanciful stories. Remember, they were from Ephesus, right? So they loved sorcery. They loved supernatural. They loved fanciful stories. And so they were taking that mentality into the Bible teaching. I guess you could say it this way, that it's one thing to take the Christian out of Ephesus. It's another thing to take Ephesus out of the Christian. So these Christian men who were teaching, they were just embellishing. They were telling stories. They were hotly debating genealogies. What does that mean? Probably the genealogies of the Old Testament. When you come to these genealogies in your quiet time, it's the portion of the scripture that you just quickly pass by, right? It's a list of a bunch of names that you don't know how to pronounce, 
Uh, you don't know who they are. You don't know what they are. And so in your quiet time, when you come to these genealogies in Genesis or wherever it may be, you think, whoo, this is going to be a short, quiet time because I'm just going to pass right over all this long list of people. Yet in this day in, in Ephesus, uh, in the first century, I mean, these guys were hotly debating who they were and what they did. Endless blah, 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 blah. Genealogy discussions. Also swirling in the first century were stories of Jesus from his childhood. Now, they weren't true because the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of childhood stories of Jesus, right? So they would start making stuff up. Some of the swirling stories consisted of this, that when Jesus was a boy, he would gather his friends in the streets and they would have to play King Jesus for a day and he would make them bow down to him. Now, did Jesus do that? No. I, I mean, we have no, no, no way to believe that he did that. The Bible doesn't tell us that he did that. Yet those were some of the stories. There was another story that said that little, little Jesus, uh, you know, maybe seven, eight years old, that he came across a dead bird and he wanted to show off in front of his friends. So he just, poof, brought that bird back to life. Now, did Jesus do that? No, he didn't do that. The Bible didn't say he did that. But those were some of the stories that were swirling in the first century. These men in this church were speaking some of those stories as if they were true. As if they had some insider knowledge about who Jesus was in infancy and who Jesus was in childhood. And I know that Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John don't tell you, but you come and listen to me and I'll tell you some of these great fanciful stories. Paul says to Timothy, these guys have to shut up. These guys have to be quiet. They're doing more damage than good. So you've got to correct them. Stop teaching false doctrine. Stop making up stories. Stop using senseless, useless chatter. I remember in seminary, uh, we would study church history. And later in church history, sometime in the medieval age, uh, the Middle Ages, there were theologians that would have great conversations Highly debated topics. And the one topic I remember that they told us about in seminary was that theologians would come together and debate this question. How many angels can you fit on the head of a pen? Who cares, right? I mean, really, who cares? How many angels can you fit on the head of a pen? I don't know. I don't care. Another question that they would debate, can God... Make something that even God cannot move. After all, God can make anything. But can he make something that even God cannot move? You see, they, what's the point? Why would you even have that conversation? Who cares? Why does that matter? Even in our day, there are times that we'll try to have theological conversations and we may pose questions like this. Is God a Republican or a Democrat? I don't know. Who cares? Right? I mean, you can really go down a rabbit trail by trying to prove your point that Jesus must be a Republican or Jesus must be a Democrat. Here's another one that sometimes I, does God care about football? Uh-oh, uh-oh. In the deep south, this is almost sacrilegious for me to say it, but does God care about football? Now, clearly he cares about basketball, but does he care about football? There are more than a few Alabama fans right now who are saying, you know what? God doesn't care about the national title game tomorrow night because Alabama ain't in it. <laughs> Does God care about football? You see how we can just engage and at the end of the day, it's just useless, silly 
meaningless chatter, right? So what Paul says to Timothy is he says, these things promote controversy, not the work of God. These conversations, these hotly debated issues that are not major issues, not significant in doctrine, look, these things promote controversy. They, they make debate. I mean, some of you were already ready to debate me on the whole, is Jesus a Republican or a Democrat conversation? Or you're, you're ready to debate on, does God love football? Yeah, he loves football. I don't, you know, I mean, I, we, we, right? It promotes controversy and fight and arguing instead of the work of God. What is the work of God? It's right there in the passage. But what is the work of God? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow the words of Jesus found in John chapter 6. Here is the work of God. To believe in the one he has sent. That's the work of God. The work of God is that we may believe in the one, Jesus Christ, that he has sent. So as a congregation... That is our primary focus. We want to believe. We want to bolster. We want to lift high. We want to magnify the one God has sent. And this one God has sent who has changed our life tremendously. Then we go forward and we tell others about the one God has sent. This is the work of God. So here comes the third statement. That when you are gospel grounded, not only, first and foremost, our allegiance to Christ is our dominant desire. And secondly, we understand and believe that Christ conquers culture. But here comes the third statement. From this passage, we know to be gospel grounded that right teaching of Jesus leads to right transformation by Jesus. Right teaching of Jesus leads to right transformation by Jesus or from Jesus. It is Jesus who transforms us from the inside out. His goal is not for us to have more information. His goal is not for us to have more inspiration. His goal is for us to have transformation from the inside out. He wants to change us from the inside out so that we would have right teaching that leads to right transformation. In the end of the passage, Paul speaks about these men who are teaching false doctrine, but apparently they must be teaching the law because he says that they teach, but they don't have any idea what they're talking about. Have you heard preachers and teachers that sound like that? Excluding present company, hopefully. But you've heard from preachers, you've heard from teachers, and you walk away thinking, they don't know what in the world they're talking about. So here, Paul says, listen, um, these men, they don't know what they're talking about. The law is good, so long as you use it properly. They must have been saying that in order for you to be saved, you got to obey the law. That's probably what they were teaching. That's probably what they were saying. That if you want to know the God of the law, then you've got to live by the law of God. And so they were using the tool, the law, incorrectly. The law is just a tool. It's like a hammer. A hammer has a purpose. It's okay to use a hammer to hit the head of a nail. It's not okay to use a hammer to hit the head of your neighbor. Right? So every tool has a purpose. So the purpose of the law is not to remove sin, but to reveal sin. You look into the law and it reveals your sin. The law in no way is a mechanism to remove sin from your life. And Paul itemizes several sinners. 
that are listed. That as they look in the law, they should see themselves as unholy, irreligious, they are murderers, they're perverts, and on the list goes, right? Because the purpose of the law was to be like a prison warden that leads us to Christ. So we are to have right teaching that leads to right transformation. And only Jesus Christ can do that. You get to the end of our passage and he simply calls it a blessed, glorious gospel. Can you agree with me that the gospel is glorious? Whew, you really missed another opportunity. But the gospel is so good. The gospel is so glorious. I don't know about you, but I'm owned by the gospel. The gospel owns me. It's the gospel that teaches me right doctrine. It's the gospel that teaches me how to believe. And how I believe about the gospel shapes how I behave because of the gospel. It's the gospel that teaches me there is one God. We are monotheistic. There is one God. And this one God, according to the gospel, is creator of all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible. He created ex nihilo out of nothing. God merely spoke, and that which was not became something that was. And this God who created everything, he is Trinitarian. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Not three gods, one God. He's three persons, one God. Oh, and this one great God knows that all of humanity is sinful. And he does not want us to stay in that sinful condition. So God the Father sent God the Son by the power of God the Spirit on a rescue mission so that you and I could be saved, so that you and I who are lost may be found. And Jesus came some 2,000 years ago. He was born in Bethlehem, born. He lived a perfect life. He died a criminal's death, not for his crimes, but for our crimes. He is the suitable substitute for us. He paid a sin debt he did not owe because we have a sin debt that we cannot pay. And on the third day, Jesus got up. He was raised from the dead. The dead man began to breathe again. He burst forth from the tomb. He's ascended to the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's making intercession for us. And one day, God the Father will give Jesus a wink and a nod. And Jesus will come and rescue his church. Now, the gospel teaches me all of that. It's because of the gospel that I understand who God is. It's because of the gospel I understand my sinful condition. It's because of the gospel I understand that Jesus is the substitute who died for my sin. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. And the gospel says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is this gospel that owns me. It is this gospel that owns you, my friend, if you're a believer. It is this gospel that grounds me in life and faith and knowledge and activity. It is this gospel that prompts my allegiance to Christ to be my dominant desire. It is this gospel that teaches me that Christ conquers culture one conversion at a time. It is this gospel that tells me that right teaching leads to right transformation, and it's all by Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, how do you know the gospel's true? Well, I could tell you the gospel's true because the Bible tells me so. For the Bible's the infallible word of God without any mixture of error. We say, oh, preacher, you come at the Bible with a presupposition that you think it's true, therefore it has to be true. No, I've told you often, that just because it's in the Bible, it doesn't make it true. It's true, and that's why it's in the Bible. Not only does the Bible tell me the gospel is true, but history tells me the gospel is true. History tells me there were hundreds of people who were eyewitnesses account, who were eyewitnesses of the account 
of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, they did not actually see the resurrection, but they saw the resurrected Christ. Hundreds of people, not just a handful, hundreds and hundreds. History tells me that. History tells me that hundreds and hundreds of people saw the nail-scarred hands. They saw the side that was pierced. They saw the resurrected Christ. But you say, Pastor, why else? I mean, the Bible tells you so. History teaches you so. How do you know the gospel's true? I know it from my own experience. I can simply sum it up like this. I serve a risen Savior, and he's in the world today. And I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, and he talks to me a long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living just because, just because, just because he lives. So this morning I ask you, does the gospel own you? Are you convinced and committed to the Christ of the gospel? If not, today can be the day of your salvation. We're going to sing a song. And if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, the Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not could be saved, not might be saved, but will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you've heard the gospel today, and if you respond in faith, today can be the day of your salvation. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you are part of the redeemed. But you need to pray, saying, God, help me this year to make more of you. Help me to be more eager, tenacious to tell your story. Because you have some family members and friends and coworkers and classmates and teammates. And boy, they need Jesus. And if you don't tell them, who will? And maybe this year God's going to use you to go into places that may be hostile towards Christianity, but God's going to use you to make a difference in somebody's life because you know that culture changes one conversion at a time. Maybe you need to come and join this church. You know, I, I think that more than 100 people are going to join the church. You may want to be the first one this year to join the church. If God is calling you to come and be part of this faith family, won't you do it? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. We pray that you will move and we'll respond in Jesus' name, amen.